Hello, everybody. My name is Gabriel Kaplan. I'm past president of the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors. And my guest today is Ed Ellinger, the former uh, director of the Minnesota State Health Department. Ed served as the director of the Minnesota State Health Department for seven years. Prior to that, he was the director of the Minneapolis Health Department for 15 years and also the director of the Student Health Services at the University of Minnesota for 16 years. So he spent his entire career in the public sector. And he's a leader in the space uh, around health equity and was one of the first state health officers in the country to dedicate his office and his department uh, to the pursuit of health equity from top to bottom. And so we wanted to have a conversation with him today uh, to learn about his experiences and share those lessons with you all. So uh, thank you, Dr. Ellinger, for joining me today. It's a pleasure to have you. And Gabriel, thank you for the invitation. I look forward to our conversation. Thanks. So you are the Chief uh, Medical Officer and Director of the Minnesota State Health Department. Uh, can you tell our audience about the decision you made to prioritize health equity and the activities the department engaged in as a result of your efforts? Well, I, social justice has been part of the, the work that I've been doing, or advancing social justice, because that's part of what public health is. Uh, I remember Bill Fagey saying, you know, the, the role of science is to discover truth, the role of Medical care has used that truth to uh, treat your patient, improve the health of your patient. But the philosophy behind public health is social justice. Um, and, and from my, my upbringing and the work that I did, particularly with the city of Minneapolis, I recognized that there were some people who were not benefiting from all of the things that go on in our society. And so we had populations that had been disadvantaged for a whole variety of reasons. And certainly as, in, as part of the cl clinician in me, saw that it wasn't because of their behaviors, it was because of the, the social factors around them in terms of housing and transportation and nutrition and education. So that has always been part of my portfolio. And so when I became state health commissioner, I said, how with this bully pulpit that I have, this platform that I have, how can I actually make a difference related to social justice? Recognizing that all of the things that we had done previously, all the work of public health, really hadn't bent the curve. We still had the disparities. We still had the inequity. Um, so I thought we had to redo our work. And so that's why I came there saying, we need to change how we do our work in public. Great. And um, what was the focus of this work? Uh, was it internal in terms of culture and workforce diversity? Uh, or was it external in terms of the outcomes and the strategies that programs were trying to achieve and implement? Or was it a little bit of both? Yeah, well, well it, it is a comprehensive approach that we have to take. The first thing is I recognize that, that inequities uh, are really complex. That means that there are multiple factors influencing so that you can't just do one thing. You have to do a whole variety of, and you have to get a whole bunch of players involved. So we actually put together using complexity theory, some simple rules uh, to guide our work. First of all, we said, we're going to really focus on, on health equity. And then the, here are the simple rules. So we developed the triple aim of health equity, which I've used at the state health department. And then I used it was when I was uh, president of ASTO, the Association of State and Territorial Health. And the three rules were first, expand our understanding about what creates health. The second is implement a health and all policies approach with health equity as a goal. And the third is strengthen the capacity of communities to enhance their own healthy future. And, and so let me go through those, uh, those, those simple rules because it, it highlights 
what we did and how it can be used in many other places. Expand our understanding of what creates health. That means change the narrative. Right now, most people believe that it's medical care and personal choices that make a difference, particularly in your field of chronic diseases. You know, they say, if people just exercised, if people just ate better, if people just didn't smoke, if people just, you know, it's blaming the individual for lifestyle choices. But that's really only a small part of what really creates health. And and certainly medical care, as important as it is, uh, also is a relatively small component of what determines health. So we had to change the narrative that it really is, it's the policies and the systems and the environment in which people live. So just changing that narrative work was so important in, in advancing this work. The second was uh, implement a health and all policies approach with health equity as the goal. Recognizing that health is not just the responsibility of medical care or public health, it is the responsibility of every sector, the education sector, the criminal justice sector, the economic development sector, all of those sectors have to be but they have to actually have health equity as the goal because like transportation, if you don't do it with health equity as a goal, it can lead to gentrification of neighborhoods, enhance things. Or if you uh, get uh, increased uh, paid leave, which is one of those determinants, if it only goes to full-time employees as opposed to part-time workers, you could actually enhance disparity. So health equity has to be the goal. And the third part is strengthening the capacity of communities to create their own healthy. I think our job is public health. One of the work that we do has to build community capacity. We have to build democracy. And, and, and if we're not building community capacity, we're not doing our work well, because it really is the, the work that communities do to change policies. They have to be on board. And this year in particular, when we're looking at voting as one of those major ways to influence policy, we have to get communities engaged. They have to take ownership of the issues and have to get involved. And so we put that together as the triple aim of health equity with social justice sort of at the core, core of that. And that, that helped us frame all of the work that we did. How is it changing the narrative? How is it developing the partnerships in health and all policies? And how is it strengthening capacity? And so everything we did at the health department had to focus on that. Great. Um- did you select any kind of operating framework? Uh, you mentioned complexity theory. Uh, I've looked around this space and I've noticed there are a number of health equity approaches that have been recommended for state health departments that have been put forward. Uh, there's one from the NEE Casey Foundation. Uh, there's another one from an organization called Equity in the Center that's called From Aware uh, to Woke to Work. Uh, and then there's also one called Moving into Equity from the Public Health National Center for Innovation. And I noticed that was uh, produced in conjunction with the Minnesota State Health Department. So I wondered uh, if you could talk about the way a framework informs this, uh, or if if it's really not necessary. Would you feel that, that this is something a, a health department really needs to have a clear understanding of before they begin, or can they stumble on it, or can they just sort of go to where they feel they really need to, to go most urgently? Yeah, we, we often try to professionalize and make things much more complicated than they actually are, and that's why the simple rules were really simple. And, uh, and so we, and, it, and sort of to your first question was, was it external? Was it internal? So the first thing we did, we had to start with our staff. We had to start working with the staff of MDH, the Minnesota Department of Health. So we did training um, on, on narrative and community engagement. And I also think you have to recognize what, one other decision that we made. Um, and it's important in this day and age, particularly here in Minnesota, where 
George Floyd murder, George Floyd's murder occurred in the city in which I live, is that we made a decision that we were going to be focusing on race because we thought racism was core to many of the disparities that we had. And in fact, when we put together our Advancing Health Equity Report in 2014, we made the statement that at the basis of all of this is structural racism. Just by saying that, it helped change the conversation in our state. It helped, it, it gave space for a conversation that is really difficult to occur, to occur. And it held us accountable to the that uh, that we are responsible. So it changed our relationship, particularly with communities of color and American Indians. Uh, so that that was was really important. The other thing that we did was when we did our advancing health equity report. Instead of us developing a draft and taking it out to the community to get their feedback on it, we actually went to the communities first. We had meetings throughout the state saying. What are your issues? What are you seeing? What are the things that really uh, are affecting your health and your ability to thrive? And then we wrote the report. And then we went back to those communities and said, did you hear your voice in this report? And if they said no, and several of them said, we didn't hear our voice in that report, we rewrote it until they could hear their voice so that the community owned the report. It wasn't the state health department report. It was a, it, it was a report from the community that we put together in partnership with them. So that community engagement, identifying structural racism as the central core of the problem that we have, it then allowed us to start the work both with the state health department staff about training, about uh, advancing health equity with a focus on race, looking at how to develop strategies of developing narrative, how to do community engagement as a public health strategy. So that was, I mean, it's, it's simple. But it takes a lot of work. It's not easy, and and it and it takes a buy-in. And that's this is where leadership counts. Uh, I think if if I hadn't been really focusing on the, this is what we're going to be doing, um, it could have easily gotten sidetracked. And I kept you know the, basically the feet to the fire. And staff really bought into this, and they felt like this is core public health work. So they actually felt motivated by the fact that we were working on social because I think that's why most people come into public health. Yeah. Um, three words are often put together in this space uh, in an organizational context. It's equity, diversity, and inclusion. Um, and much of the materials that people can find on the web are focused on equity and inclusion. And you talked about the importance of training the staff uh, so we can learn about how to advance equity in the workplace and integrate this into our work. Um, and they teach us about inclusion and how to work, make the workplace a safer, more welcoming space for historically marginalized groups. Uh, achieving diversity in the workforce is often harder to achieve in state government because of rigid hiring rules and job classifications. Were your experiences in Minnesota, what were they in terms of trying to achieve greater diversity in your workforce? Did you have success or, or did you struggle there? Well, these are, all, these are, these are difficult issues. They're, these are complex issues and they're not easily resolved. This has to be a, a long-term investment. And certainly we did not have a workforce that um, reflected the community that we serve. So we looked at what are the reasons behind it. Uh, and we, and then this is where we looked at all of our policies and, and found out that many of them were structurally racist. So that, you know, we have jobs that, you know, in environmental control and in nutrition and uh, the lab and, uh, you know, home visiting and all these sorts of things. And we, what were the, the, the requirements for the job? We, we had put a lot of educational requirements on it that only because we 
got a big pool of folks and we wanted some way to weed out the people and we thought educational requirements would be one way of, of kind of limiting the pool. Well, it was, it was discriminatory. It, it weeded out a lot of people who qualified but didn't have, but, and particularly people of color and, and, and immigrants. So we really looked at what our job requirements were as one of the things that was there. Certainly we also had to look at what's going on in the education system and in communities throughout the state in terms of what were the policies that were keeping them from you know, getting into the pipeline, so to speak, of, of, of job advancement. So we had to work in a multiple variety of areas to try to increase diversity. And, and the, the other thing about diversity was, uh, and this is sort of the inclusion, how do you make people feel welcome in an in a organization that is predominantly white? And that's, you know, basically you have to change the culture. And you have to try to make sure that people are welcomed and, and are supported. And so we looked at a lot of the ways that we either supported or didn't support staff and made a concerted effort to make sure that, that individuals of color and, and American Indians would get the support that they needed. And that's an ongoing thing in state government or any governmental organization. It's, it's hard to do. We made some progress. Still a lot you know, still remains to be done. This is not something that you do and get over with. It is an ongoing process. Um, I heard you speak uh, recently to a group um, of state health officers about the importance of voting and political participation from a public health perspective. Uh, that's a pretty novel idea, but it's certainly one I support um, because when I've mapped the strong correspondence between voter turnout and positive health outcomes using GIS uh, in cities and places across the country, is just a very clear positive relationship. Uh, where the greater the voter turnout, the better the health outcomes uh, by precinct or census tract, and vice versa. When voter turnout is low, health outcomes are low. Uh, what brought you to this idea? All right. So what definition of public health do you use? Um, the definition I guess I use is probably the one that's sort of inspired by John Snow's example, which is that uh, can we identify factors in our communities and in our environment that are making people sick and what kinds of policies, systems, and environmental changes can we advance uh, to promote health and to eliminate the sources of sickness. All right. So in that definition lies why voting is important. The Institute of Medicine framed it in a, with a fewer words than you use. You know, it, public health is what we as a society do collectively to assure the conditions in which people can be healthy. And you talked about those conditions and what influences those conditions, public policies at all levels and also uh, private policies within organizations, you know, private organizations. And what influences policies? It's policymakers. And how do people become policymakers? They get elected. And so there's a link between the conditions in which people live and their voting. And as you pointed out, the more people who express their desire, who participate in the democratic process, the more likely they are to get policymakers to get, it, get elected and reflect their needs. And I look back at a couple of things in particular that, that stand out because they're so striking. When women got the right to vote in 1920, the maternal mortality rate, which had been running, I don't know the exact number, but it was you know high within a year because when women got the right to vote, policymakers said we need to pass some laws to meet the needs of women, so they passed the Shepherd Towner Act. And within a year, the maternal mortality rate dropped dramatically. 
Um, similarly, the infant mortality rate dropped because this is a, a women's issue. The second part is in 1965, when they passed the Voting Rights Act, uh, African-American infant mortality rate, because I deal mostly with maternal and child health, again, took a big drop. And the disparities in black and white infant mortality decreased for the first time since World War II. Uh, so it said, when people get a chance to vote, it actually impacts their immediate health, particularly the health of, of moms. And, and so that's why I thought this, this is an important public health issue. The other thing is why it's a, an important public health issue, because the people who don't vote are usually low income, people who live in, in uh, communities of color, American Indians, uh, people who don't speak English as their first language. And so our job is to you know, enhance their voter participation. And public health generally works with those populations. We serve disadvantaged populations in our direct service delivery. So we have access to this group. So getting them registered to vote, helping them vote safely is should be what we do on a regular basis. Great. Um, so can you give some examples? You talked about uh, community capacity was an important pillar uh, in the approach that Minnesota took. And, um, you know, it's interesting, uh, Anthony Eiton was the head of the Alameda County Health Department, and early in his career, probably about 15, 20 years ago, he began mapping the correspondence between life expectancy and poverty and the percent of children in poverty, and saw across um, Alameda County huge disparities uh, that mimicked the percent of people who were in poverty uh, that affected life expectancies, um, you know, on the order of you know, 10 to 15 years when you just walk, you know, went a few miles from one census tract to the next. And, uh, and yet when he began um, his work in the social determinants of health, he didn't start with poverty, but he started with community participation and voter registration. Uh, so the very first project I think he funded uh, was a voter registration drive um, out of Alameda County. Uh, so what are some examples of public health initiatives besides voter registration um, that we can undertake from a public health department perspective. And I wonder if you could talk also about um, sort of the reaction that that might engender of perhaps surprise on the part of policymakers who see public health wandering into this space and maybe get a little nervous. I'm thinking back to the model cities in the 1960s um, made politicians extremely nervous because it really threatened the traditional power of the political machines. Uh, so I wonder if you could talk about what public health can do in this space and how it might sort of deal with a potential reaction or backlash against it if it ventures into this area. Well, I think you put your finger on it. It's, it is about power. And I also, again, used the, the, the war on poverty in the Great Society programs of the 60s as building community power and in the backlash because the communities got too powerful and they were systematically undercut. And that's why, you know, we started having the disparities increase starting in the 60s, late 60s, after the war on poverty programs were sort of gutted and, and, and weakened. But um, so well, one example that we have here about building community capacity is that um, we, 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 we pair with the community um, on, on, the, on the work that we did so that a lot of times, if the community, because the community voice is so powerful, particularly with, you know, my boss was the governor, he would listen to the, the community more than he would listen to me. So when the community said, you know, we, we know there's a link between income and health, 
could you have the health department do some study on income and health? And because we had worked with the community to prime the pump so that they went to the legislature and asked the legislature to ask us at the health department to do this, this report on income and health. So we did, you know, and, and we got this report and we gave it back to the community. And in this report, it said that if you can, that the difference in life expectancy between the lowest income and the highest income was eight years. And that if you could increase the minimum wage to get people above $35,000 per year for a family of four, you could increase their life expectancy by three and a half years. And so with that report, we got it out to many of the unions, particularly one union that really focused on uh, the, the maintenance workers for Walmart and Target, particularly Target. They took this called C-Tool, and it's a mostly Spanish-speaking group of workers. They translated our report, and they took it to Target, the official to Target, and said, give us back our eight years. You've taken away because you've limited our income. You've, you've shortened our lives by eight years. And so they actually got Target to change their policies, their payment policies, their workforce policies, their leave policies, by the, by the, the report that we put out at the request of the community. So this is where community and public health have to really work collectively. And, and also with that report, we were able to get, and, and there are many other factors, it's not always not just one report that, that does it, there are a lot of other factors, but we were able to get a minimum wage up to $15 per hour in Minnesota. And I say to the, I told the governor, that was the biggest public health achievement of your, your tenure as, as governor. By increasing the minimum wage, you increased life expectancy by at least three and a half years. Nothing, maybe immunizations could, will have something to do with that, but nothing else can have that kind of major impact. And so this is where working with the community, working with data, working with community organizing uh, and influencing policy can really have a huge impact on health. We've seen a lot of examples um, lately uh, about the tension in American society between expertise, scientific knowledge, uh, things that we in social sciences might call, um, you know, data evidence and facts, uh, and strong resistance on the part of the community. Um, it certainly is the case if you look at research studies that um, experiments, for instance, with things like basic uh, human income, um, their experiments like raising the minimum wage, uh, early childhood, universal early childhood education, these things have tremendous impacts on health. Um, but there, sadly, in American society uh, is a strong perception that these are partisan political issues. Uh, and therefore, if public health uh, wanders into the debates around these issues, they're exposing themselves to criticism that they may be trying to put their hands on the political scales and influence the political dialogue and in the country. Uh, what does public health say to society when things like scientific evidence, uh, medical recommendations like mask wearing, when those get challenged as, as a partisan political perspective? Well, I think our job is to tell the truth. We have to be evidence-based, data-driven, uh, and we need to have more than just the objective evidence. We need to have some of the quantitative and qualitative evidence um, to, to highlight what we do. And, and then we have to really be, be bold or be strong in saying this is what the evidence says. If you don't 
believe the evidence, give me whatever your evidence is. Again, we know that it's not partisan politics. It is the data, and we have to be, you know, we have to be powerful in that. What we're seeing, however, is in this day and age, they become partisan, and some people are losing their jobs because uh, they don't want to do the the political, they don't want to follow the political directives that they're given. Um, that's why voting is so, you know, that the communities that really are really mostly disadvantaged by public policies are those who haven't voted in the past at the same level. And so their voice has to be heard so that we can take that, so that we can really raise the, the importance of the data, raise the importance of the impact that the policies influenced by the data have on communities, and we can change those policies. Um, public health is political. There's no doubt about it. Um, but we cannot give up our science. We cannot give up our data-driven approaches. And we can't give up on the fact that we really want a socially just society where everybody has the opportunity to thrive, that nobody benefits at the expense of somebody else. <clears throat> and that is what we know actually increases health overall. There's also this, this notion that um, health is a zero-sum game. You know, if, if, if people at the bottom improve their health, people at the top lower their health. That's not true. As our, as our you know, former Senator Paul Wellstone said, we all do better when we all do better. And, and that's, the, again, changing the, the narrative that it's in our best, we have vested interest in improving the health of everybody in our community because uh, we all benefit from that. Thank you so much. Uh, on those words, uh, I think I'll conclude this interview, but this has really been a fascinating conversation and uh, I've learned a lot and I want to thank you so much for your time and for all of the leadership you've shown in this area nationally. Thanks and uh, keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Health To Be Determined, a podcast brought to you by the National Association of Chronic Disease Directors. Please visit www.chronicdisease.org to listen to more podcasts like this one.